Hey guys, it's Scott. I just want to thank you for tuning into the Blue Ridge Church podcast. You know, I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope it's inspiring to you. And I pray most of all, it's going to help you on your faith journey. So enjoy today. Well, good morning and welcome to Blue Ridge Church Online. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I know this isn't ideal, uh, kind of a last minute thing, but we had some issues with all the rain and the ice. And so we're doing our job to clean up right now so that we can get back next week. But I want to welcome you here today. Uh, if it's your first time, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we are just really excited that you've tuned in because we are starting a brand new series today called Signs. And what we're going to talk about over the next couple weeks are the signs and the miracles that Jesus performs while he's on this earth. And so of all the things we talk about, we're going to base it in the book of John, and we're going to look at seven different miracles, seven different signs that point to something really specific in the Bible. And it starts in verse 30 in John chapter 20, starting and says this, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Another spot in the same book, we read that Jesus performed so many signs and miracles that even all of the libraries and all of the world would not be able to contain all of the things that Jesus has done. Now, unfortunately, they didn't have Wikipedia back then, so you know, we don't know if that's figurative or literal, but, but the idea is that Jesus did a lot. He performed a lot of signs, a lot of miracles. He did a lot of things for the people that, that really proved him to be who he claimed to be. But John is saying this, out of all of those things, he did them for one purpose, to prove to us that he is who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by understanding that and believing in that, he says that we will have life by the power of his name. So what John does here in the, the Gospel of John is he records seven different miracles or seven different signs that do exactly that, that point our attention to who Jesus is. And, and it becomes evidence to prove that Jesus who was he claimed to be. Now, evidence is really important, you know, especially right now in the culture we live in, uh, evidence is a really big deal. And the problem that we have, uh, kind of across the board, it doesn't matter what you believe or what political party you align with, evidence is a really big deal because uh, none of us like any evidence that, that proves anything that we don't believe in, right? So, so if we believe in something or we have a stance in something Typically what happens is this, we choose to believe, pick and choose to believe the evidence that we want to read and we want to believe because it affirms our beliefs or our worldview, right? Everyone in the world has a worldview and that's typically because we grew up a certain way. It's because, you know, we were raised a certain way. Maybe you had certain experiences in your life that shaped the way you are. It, it really changes the way you see the world, how you see yourself, how you see other people and institutions, things like that. And so we all come to the table with a specific worldview. And what happens is most of us we, we will stay very close to whatever that is. And, and so we'll, we'll choose to believe whatever affirms that worldview. So for example, I truly believe that Jesus was the son of God, that he came to this world, lived a perfect life, and, and I love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I also believe that Buffalo Bill fans are the greatest fan base in all of sports. Okay, I truly believe that. And so here's what I do. 
when I read articles online, or typically this, I'll only read articles online that affirm that truth. So if someone writes an article online or on Facebook or a news station or an ESPN, and they say the Bills are the greatest fans on earth, they, they jump through tables, they're crazy, they're wild. The Bills had 17 seasons of losing seasons, didn't make the playoffs, and the people still showed up. They are the best in the business. And I'll say, I like this guy. I like this girl. They know what they're talking about. I'm going to start reading more about this from this, these people. And it's the same way. And if I ever read an article that says something like, the Dallas Cowboys have the best fan base in all of history and all of sports, I claim probably fake news, right? His sources or her sources are not credible. They don't know what they're talking about because that's not true. Because what I believe is true, everything else is not. And we do that with almost everything, right? We can find a group of people that believe what we believe and think the same way we think, and we can shut our eyes to everything else out there that doesn't affirm those beliefs. And that can be funny at times. It could be, you know, small things, but it also could be big things, right? I mean, think about the belief in God. You know, if if you believe in God, typically what you will do is gravitate more towards other people and other places and and articles and videos and, and evidence that points and affirms to the belief that God is real. And if anyone ever writes anything or does anything or this new thing comes out or new, new thing happens, we'll usually shut our minds off to it because we're like, nope, I'm, I'm not going to look at that. That's not true. That's not, they're, they're probably lying. They have some ulterior motive. Something else is going on and we shut ourselves off to any other evidence. You could say the same about people who don't believe in God, that they really don't want God to be real. So, you know, anyone who says he is or anyone who can demonstrate some evidence or show anything or prove anything that would affirm what people believe when they say they believe in God, they would say, no, I don't believe it. That's fake news. That's not real. They're biased. And so what we've done is we've created a culture and a world that the evidence only matters if it affirms and supports what we believe. And that couldn't be further from what God wants for us as people. And I think that's one of the reasons why John writes the gospel. See, we need to remember that when we come to the Bible, uh, this wasn't just a book that was written where a bunch of guys came together and are like, let's write a, a book that talks about God and proves what we, what we believe and shows all of these cool things. No, a lot of these were individual books. We combined them hundreds of years after they were written. And a lot of these became historical documents that provided evidence for people like us to believe. Some of these are, we call them books sometimes, but they really aren't even books. A lot of them are letters, right? Letters to different churches, letters to different people. And so we've kind of intercepted these letters and we've, we've seen them as they were inspired by God. This is accurate. We believe uh, that this is showing us who God is and what he's done in this world. And, and so we compiled them later in the Bible, but we've got to look at books like the book of John, and we've got to look at these uh, not only just as inspiration of the message that God wanted for us to know, but they're actual historical documents that John writes in order to prove to us and show to us who Jesus was, what he did, and then let us do what we need to do with that, whether we put our faith in that and believe that or we reject that. So before we dive into the first sign, I do want to clarify one thing that you're going to hear a lot over the next seven weeks as we look at all these different signs. And we're going to talk a lot about faith, okay? And so what I want you to really understand probably more than anything about this is that when we talk about faith, we're not talking about blind faith, 
Okay, there's a huge difference between faith and blind faith. A lot of people, both Christian and not Christian, would believe or think that, that we're just kind of like, I hope God is real, you know, I'm not really sure, and, and so I'll, I'll kind of go all in on this because if, he's, if he is, then I'll be in good shape. Uh, if he's not, eh, no harm, no foul. And so we just kind of hope that God is real, and at the end of our lives, we go and meet this God. Okay, that's not the type of faith that God talks about in the Bible. The, the faith that we see in the scripture is actively trusting in the person of God. Okay, here's learning number one. If you want to write this down or follow along, learning number one, biblical faith is active trust based on evidence. Okay, it's based on evidence. We're not just hoping this is real. We're not just hoping that in the end that God ends up being real and, and, and all the things we've done for God are worth it. But we truly believe that, that not only is God real, but we put our faith and our trust in the person of Jesus for, for doing the things he said he would do and being the person he said he was. Now, this doesn't mean you can't struggle. Another misconception that a lot of times people believe is, is if I want to have true faith and I cannot struggle with my faith, and that could not be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, I'll argue this with almost anyone is that if you have never gone through seasons of your life of significant doubt, then you probably don't have a very strong faith. See, I, I truly believe that in order to be all in and truly understand who God is and have the confidence in what you believe, you've got to go through seasons and struggles where you doubt. Because what happens is that doubt causes us to go back to the evidence go back to the reality and, and, and find proof and find, you know, the reason to believe in God. And it makes your faith stronger along the way. I mean, you could look at the Bible here and see that there are people after people. I mean, biblical giants, people who we read and revere as great saints, they struggled with believing. People who look Jesus face to face, like the physical Jesus, and, and still had to struggle with faith and with belief. One of my personal favorites is in Luke chapter 24. You won't have a verse on your screen, but um, I'll explain it. It's, it's after Jesus has died, he's rose again, and he's starting to visit different people. His disciples, some of his apostles, people who you know, he never really met before that, but he's visiting all these people over a six-week period. And there's this one instance in Luke 24 where Jesus appears to his followers, and they're kind of freaked out. And they're like, man, is, is this a ghost? is this an apparition? Like, what, what's going on here? This kind of looks like Jesus, but he looks a little different. He's a little brighter than normal. And so what Jesus does is he says, here's the, the holes in my hands where they crucified me. Here's the holes in my feet where they crucified me. Go ahead and touch them. See for yourself. I'm the real Jesus. And so a lot of these people touch his hands and they, they, they feel where Jesus was crucified. And, and this is amazing. Some people do that and they're still like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. Like it, like it is perfectly normal to struggle with your faith and struggle with doubt and have questions as to whether or not this happened or that happened or this was the way it was. And so it drives us back to the evidence. And that's what we're going to look at in the book of John is the account of evidence that he leaves for us, for people like us, for people like me and you, to read and to let wash over us that point us to the person of Jesus. And so let's dive into the very first sign, the very first miracle. It's a very popular miracle. A lot of you probably heard about it before, especially if you grew up in church. Um, it's when Jesus turned water into wine. 
Now, if you were like me and you went to a church that was a little Southern Baptist, you probably heard that Jesus turned water into grape juice. Um, And so maybe you're not familiar with everything that happened in this story, but we're going to talk about it today. And, And really how it starts off is at this wedding. And to fully understand this, we need to really grasp what a, an ancient Jewish wedding would have been like, because it was a pretty cool deal. Uh, they're a lot different than, weddings were a lot different then than they are today, even though we do have big events. Like we think they're, you know, huge events, which they are. But if you look back a couple thousand years ago, I mean, these were massive parties, sometimes that lasted for five to seven days long. Okay, and so how a Jewish wedding would start is the groom and his groomsmen would go get ready at at the groom's house and they'd get all their clothes on. And so what they would do is they would go from the groom's house and they would go over to the bride-to-be's house, which was typically with her father. Okay, she was living with her dad at this time. And so they would go over together and they would go to his house and they would pick up their daughter, right? Which was for any father, had to be terrifying. (laughs) You know, the worst. Like 10 guys show up at your door. We're here to pick up your daughter. I mean, that's got to be just brutal, right? And so she would come out and they would pick her up and put her in sort of like a carriage. It was called a litter. They'd put her in this carriage and they would parade her around the village. They'd carry her in this this carriage and, and they would go through and they would process throughout the village. Now, the villages that they lived in weren't like entire towns that we live in today. They were a little smaller than that. But typically an entire village would have been invited to a wedding of someone who lived there. And so what they would do is they'd pick up the daughter And they would go throughout the village and they would process throughout the village. They'd celebrate, they would cheer, they'd sing songs, they would dance, they would party, and they would celebrate what was about to happen, that these two people were going to get married. Now, it's important for us to understand that the way a wedding worked back then was that it was the groom and the groomsmen's responsibility to make sure everything in the wedding was taken care of. Okay, they were like the wedding coordinators of an ancient wedding, which for you, that would have probably meant your wedding never happened. Okay, if it was the groom and the groomsman's responsibility to make sure everything was taken care of, all the details were worked out, it probably would have never happened. Like my wedding, I think, I think it took them, you know, three days before the, the rehearsal dinner for them to finally go get measured for their tuxedos for our wedding right? Like this was probably a disaster uh, for a lot of families back then. And what was even crazier is this, is that if the groom failed to do any of this, if he failed to prepare correctly for the wedding ceremony, then the mother of the bride, the mother-in-law, had a legal right to sue the groom for everything he was worth. I mean, you thought you had family problems? (laughs) I mean, this would have been crazy. Can you imagine that? And so it's the groom and the groomsman's responsibility to make sure everything's taken care of, everything's good to go. And and so they pick up the the soon-to-be bride and they start parading her and processing with her throughout the village. And what they're doing is they're going from house to house, picking up family members, picking up friends, and those people would join into the procession along with them. And so it would be this huge party, this huge parade that they were at, and they would be going in and out and singing songs and cheering, and, and they're like, hey, Uncle Bob, let's go, Aunt Mary, let's go. Like, they would be picking everyone up, it would be this huge party, and the, the party that day would finally end when they picked everybody up, and they made their way back to the father of the groom's house. And so what they would do is they would line up outside of the father of the groom's house, And they would knock on the door, and then the father of the groom, and if he was married, the mother would come out as well, and and he would pray a blessing over the couple, the soon-to-be-married couple. 
And this was a very special prayer. It was something rooted deeply in the Jewish faith. And so he'd pray for them, he'd bless them, and just pray for God's blessing and hand in their marriage. And then after that prayer, he would send everybody home and everyone would go back to their respective houses. Now, the next morning, they would start what we know as the wedding celebration, the wedding feast. So in the morning, the, the men would join the groom and the groomsmen, and they would go somewhere, and they'd have the bachelor party, okay? And then the women, all the women invited to the wedding, they would meet with the bride and the bridesmaids, and they would have what we would equate uh, a wedding shower, where there'd be a lot of presents, there'd be snacks, there'd be drinks, a lot of celebrating. Both groups would celebrate with one another, and then once all of those festivities were over, that evening they would join back together to finally have that wedding celebration that would last, you know, four, five, six days long. And so the idea here was as, as the wedding celebration progressed, as the days went on, the party would get a little more intense. They'd be playing games, they'd be singing, they'd be dancing, they would be having some food, some drink. They would really be celebrating, building up to that final day where the, the husband and wife would be married together. Okay, and so our story of Jesus turning water into wine starts somewhere around this time period. And it's really not clear as to where in the party or where in this, you know, wedding celebration his miracle happens. But we could kind of guess from the scripture that it was towards the end of the week. And so what happens is we see Jesus, his mom, and some of Jesus, his disciples, his followers were invited to this wedding. And it picks up here in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. Okay, this was terrible. This would have been the most humiliating, embarrassing thing that could have possibly happened outside of the bride or the groom not showing up to the wedding. Okay, and I know some of you are watching and you're like, my family, my friends, running out of alcohol is not out of the question, right? That is nothing surprising. That's nothing that would catch us off guard, completely normal. But, uh, but this would have been the equivalent at our, one of our, like a modern wedding of the first two tables getting up to go get their food. And after that table sits down, the food runs out, right? Awkward, really socially unacceptable. And because most ancient cultures were shame cultures, this would have put them in a very, very bad position. And so it was embarrassing, it was socially unacceptable, and it just ended up being a huge problem for this family. Because wine, you have to understand, wine was really important, especially at a wedding feast. Okay, there was a lot of symbolism in wine. There was the symbol of celebration. It was the symbolism of a friendship, of relationships. Um, you know, not only was it something that helped people who can't dance help them dance, but it was, there was a lot of, of, of symbolism, like transformation, right? There was a huge symbol of transformation. You know, when two people get married, the Bible teaches us that it's two people, individuals coming together as one, and spiritually they're united together forever. And so wine would symbolize that, the transformation that takes place by when grapes are crushed, they ferment into wine. That transformation into wine would take place. And so there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of things that, uh, you know, really went into this, but wine was a really important part of the wedding ceremony, and they ran out of what they needed most. They ran out of what they needed most. 
You know, when I look at my own life, I, I can see that a lot of the anxiety and stress that I get is caused by the fear of running out of stuff. The fear of running out of something that I need most. Right? Maybe it's running out of time. You know, sometimes I, I get nervous of whether that's throughout the day, I don't have enough time to get things done, or, or just in general in life, like I fear running out of time on earth with my family, with my friends, with the people I love. I uh, fear running out of patience, of maybe running out of, uh, you know, energy. If you've got families and if you've got people who drain you of energy, you know, fearing running out of something we need the most. And running out of something, especially something really important, is always at the worst time, isn't it? Like, do you remember back in the day when vehicles, they wouldn't have a digital TV on there that showed you exactly how many miles you had left before you ran out of gas? You know, my first car was an 89 Ford Taurus, okay? And I was born in 87, so this thing was only two years older than I was, and I started driving at 16. So this thing was old. I mean, this was a tank. It had nothing electronic on it. Everything was, you know, cranking windows. The locks on the doors didn't even work. And I remember when I was in high school, the, the gas gauge broke on the car. And so I could never tell how much gas was in the car at all. And so I'd have to play this game, you know, how many miles do I have left before I run out of gas? And, and so I wasn't filling up the tank back then. I was putting maybe 5 or $10 in the tank at a time. And so I'd have to do the math. Okay, my car gets 12 miles a gallon. If I'm going here and there, I'll have enough to get back two or three times. And, and so it was to be this huge game. I had a stack of paper on my dash that would show me when I filled everything up on the mileage. And it was just a mess. But running out of gas, especially back then, was terrifying. Wasn't it? I mean, thinking of running out of gas, there was no cell phones in cars. Like, if you ran out of gas, like, you had to get out of your car, walk up to some stranger's house, knock on their door, and ask them to use their landline telephone. And if you didn't memorize the phone numbers of your friends and family members, I mean, you were toast, right? There was no way to get out of that, right? Some of you are having panic attacks remembering that when you were younger, <laughs> But running out of things, especially important things that we need the most, can be, again, some of the most terrifying, anxious, scary moments in our lives. You know, I know parents, you're watching, you know, you've probably coronavirus for 12 months, locked down, everywhere's closed, there's nowhere to bring your kids. It's been rainy, icy, windy, snowy, freezing over the last four weeks. You can't, you're locked in your house, school's been canceled, daycares are canceled, church has been canceled. And it's just, you're, you have run out of everything. You've run out of everything. I mean, uh, we just, tomorrow will mark the one-month birthday of our newest addition to our family. He was born a month ago tomorrow. And so we've got a four-year-old, we've got a two-year-old, and now we've got a one-month-old, all boys. So we are, we've run out of everything, right? It's, it's crazy in the Barber household. We have two dogs and one of them, a 90-pound lab, just had surgery on her neck. And so she's got this oversized cone on her head, running around. She's a psycho, running around all the time, knocking our four-year-old and two-year-old over, pushing the rock and play over of the baby. I mean, it is just a complete mess. And people are like, yeah, how's it going? You guys doing good? And we're like, yeah, things are going good. <laughs> No, but people will ask us, they'll say, you know, so what is it like going from two kids to three kids? You know, now you're outnumbered. What is that like? And at first I was like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's not really anything that different. But as he's gotten a little older, it's, you know, exhausting. And, and I feel like I finally put a finger on what it was like or what it's like to go from two to three. And the best I could say is this. You know those prescription drug commercials where they talk about all the side effects 
of taking that drug. That, that's almost exactly what it's like to live in the Barber household right now. I mean, it is crazy. We're exhausted. We're not getting any sleep. We're not, I mean, it's just, we're exhausted. We have run out. There is nothing left in the tank. And I'm sure you watching this morning, you could probably say, there is something I have run out of, or I'm very close to running out of. Maybe it's kids. Maybe you're running out of the patience to deal with your husband or your wife, running out of ideas of how you can fix or save your relationship. Maybe you feel like you're running out of time. Maybe you feel like you're running out of patience with someone at work, your employer, maybe an employee that you have, a coworker, and you're just like, I'm done. I've run out of everything. I've got nothing left to give. My tank is empty. Most of us probably have something that we have run out of in life, but this is what's so amazing about Jesus. And this is what's so amazing about the first sign that he leaves to us. And, and this is learning number two. Jesus provides his best when we are at our worst. You know, throughout life, you'll realize this is if you walk with Christ, is when we are at our worst is when Jesus shows up at his best. I think it's no coincidence that Jesus takes away the humiliation and the embarrassment of a couple who had run out of the one thing they were responsible to have enough of. They ran out. And Jesus comes into this first miracle and he changes that. And he says, listen, when you run out, here I am. When, when you've gotten to the end of your rope, you've got nothing left to give, here I am. I've come to fill you up in an amazing way. And so this really bad situation, humiliating, terrible situation, the wine is gone. And so Mary comes up to Jesus and she says, hey, listen, they're out of wine. There's nothing left. This is bad. And I want you to see how Jesus responds. And before this, I, I want to preface, this is probably not one of those verses you want to commit to memory. Okay, out of all the verses in the Bible, here's what Jesus says. She says, his mom says, hey, uh, we've run out of wine. Jesus says this in verse four. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. I mean, he says, woman, I'm going to start using that with my wife, right? She wakes me up at 3 a.m. to feed the baby. Woman, why do you involve me? I mean, she would put a pillow on my face and not let it go. And I know this sounds bad. It looks bad. You know, Jesus is harsh. He's being mean to his mom. There really, honestly, there's no true way to interpret from the different languages to express what Jesus was saying here in verse four. But, but my favorite explanation is this, is that Jesus was basically saying this to his mom. If I do this, if, if I'm, I get involved right now, there's no turning back in my ministry. Right? A lot of us know Jesus came to this earth to, to die on a cross. And what he's saying to his mom here is this, if I show people who I am right now, this is where it starts. And this is the beginning of the journey I start taking towards the cross. And I love that because this is how his mother responds. In verse five, it says, his mother tells the servants, the servants at the wedding, do whatever he tells you to do. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. And so that's what they do. Jesus tells these servants, he goes, go fill up these six, six stone jars, these, these stone jars that were filled with water. 
And typically these would be things that were used to wash people's hands and their feet, the guests who came to the wedding. And, you know, they didn't have, you know, sinks back then. They didn't have shoes. There were no paved roads. And so a lot of dust would accumulate on their legs and their feet. And so as people came in, they would wash their feet with this water in those jars. They'd wash their hands between meals. And so Jesus tells the servants, go fill up all six of those jars to the top with water. And so they do it. And in verse 8, Jesus says, Now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies, who was like the head waiter. Take it to the head waiter. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. And in verse 10, he says, A host always serves the best wine first. He tries it. He's amazed. He says, the host always serves the best wine first. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the least expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. I love this. And I think Jesus is so intentional here because what he does is he says, go fill up these six jars. And these were big old jars. I mean, they would have held 20 to 30 gallons of water each which means that when Jesus performed this miracle, now they had 180 gallons of wine. There was no human possibly way that they would ever be able to drink 180 gallons of wine at this wedding. That's over a thousand bottles of wine. And I know some of you, again, you're thinking, depends on the day, right? Depends who's with me, depends on what's going on in my life. But, but, but listen, that's a lot of wine. And I, and I know you might want to follow the scripture and, and, and accept that challenge of Jesus. But, but here's the point he's making. It's learning number three. God is a God of more than enough. I think he's super intentional about making sure he filled up those jars to the top. And he didn't say, go get one, don't go get two. Or just, you know, however much is left, I'll turn it into wine. He says, go fill them up. There was no possible way a wedding party could possibly drink over 180 gallons of wine. And in that same way, there is no possible way that God will ever run out of the ability to fill us up when we feel at our emptiest, loneliest, darkest moments. Jesus is saying, there is no place you can get to in life where what I have to offer, what I have to give to you will never be enough. I will fill you up. No matter how empty you are, no matter how much or how least, less you have in the tank left, I will be able to fill you up with all I have to give, the joy and the grace and the mercy. Here's what Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or what we might think. Jesus is saying here, when you run out of what you need the most in your life, I will always be there to fill you back up to the brim. And there will never be a moment in your life where I am unable to fill up what you've already lost. My, my cup overfills. We read that in the Bible, some of the songs of people saying, you know, I'm at my worst in life, but God, my cup overfills. My heart, my life overfills with the joy and the grace that you show me in my life. And I love that. I love that this is how Jesus starts out his ministry, demonstrating this purpose. There's one more thing that I really want you to see here before we, we close. You know, Jesus tells the servants, right? Mary tells the, the servants, do what Jesus tells you to do. And, and so they do it. They serve Jesus. Not only are they servants at the wedding, but they serve Jesus. So he says, go get these six jars, fill them up with water, and they do it. 
He says, okay, now that you've filled them up, now go take a, a cup and dip it in there and go give it to the head waiter. And they do it. They're obedient. They, they do what Jesus tells them to do. And so we read that th this guy, he, he takes the cup and he drinks a little bit and he's just like amazed, like, wow, you know, this is amazing. This is great wine. Most people save the best wine for the beginning, but you've saved it for last. And I, I want to point this out in verse nine because it says that he has no idea where this wine came from. He just, he doesn't know. But in verse nine, it says this, though, of course, the servants knew. The servants knew. Why do they know? Because they watched Jesus. They were serving Jesus as they watched him perform this incredible sign in their midst. And I think that's not an accident of how that worked out. Because what you'll find out in your life as you follow Jesus or you try to figure out what this all means for you is that there is a huge difference between serving Jesus and then just taking a sip of what he has and what he's done. Like, think about this story. The people who are serving Jesus knew exactly where this miraculous sign came from because they are able to watch Jesus do it in front of them. And then the one that was just taking a sip had no idea. He knew the blessing, but he didn't know the blesser. He knew what he had seen in front of him, but he didn't know where it came from. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't know what was going on because all he was doing was taking a sip. See, I think that as we look at this first sign, it's no accident that this is the way Jesus starts out his ministry. As he's showing us, my grace is enough for you. I, when you are at your worst, I will fill you up to your best and fill you up with a cup that's overflowing in your life. And there was never a moment that what I have to offer you will not be enough. But I think the first call of action we get in this first sign is that we need to move beyond just taking sips and start serving. To, to listen, to listen, be someone who commits to obedience in your life. Believing in God, trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross is sufficient for you and for me, but then also walking in faith and walking in that obedience where we get a front row seat into watching God perform miraculous things and signs in our lives. I think John, when he wrote this book, that's what he had in mind in John 20. We read this in the beginning, but, but the whole point of this sign the whole point of this miracle was to point to one thing, to point to Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. And this is what he can do for you. And by seeing this, by looking at the evidence, here's what we, we see. By believing in him, John 20 says, you will have life by the power in his name. They're pointing to Jesus. These signs point to who he is, who he's claimed to be, and gives us a foundation of faith to believe. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the signs and the miracles that we read about. Thank you so much for inspiring John to write these things down so that 2,000 years later, we, we don't have to guess. And we don't have to to hope that, that maybe he's real, maybe he's not, maybe he did some cool things, maybe he didn't, but we can have confidence and we can have assurance that who Jesus claimed to be is who he actually was, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. Lord, for those watching who have never made that decision, who've never taken that step, 
And maybe they would look and say, yeah, I've, I've been kind of exposed to it. I've seen some, some amazing things. Maybe it's in a relationship or maybe that's in someone else, but I've, I've taken the sips, but I've never actually moved from taking sips to, to start serving you and, and living in obedience. And, and maybe that's something you want to do today. There's nothing magical that you've got to do. You just tell God silently in your heart, I'm ready. I'm ready to serve. I'm done just taking a little sips. I'm done just experiencing the blessings and not getting to know the blesser. Come into my life. I believe in you. I trust in you. I have faith in you, Jesus. For the rest of us, Lord, let this sign be a reminder, like John said, for those of us who believe in him, let these signs be an encouragement. Let them help us and motivate us and push us towards more of a servant's attitude and more of a worshipful attitude in life as we remember who he is as we get a front row seat to watching what he does. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, listen, thanks again for tuning in this morning. Um, if you want to go ahead and fill out a connection card, go ahead and do that. Your online host, either whether you're on Facebook or the website, they'll drop that link into the chat right now. You can fill out that connection card. If you've got something you need, maybe a prayer request, if you want to get involved to join a group, or maybe you want to start serving and volunteering at the church, you can go ahead and check that box and we'll make sure to get you all that information. There's also a place to give online if that's how you want to worship this morning, so you can do that as well. But I want to thank you again for tuning in this morning. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks.